0: hi hello what is up and welcome back to girl you haven't heard the podcast where we discuss true crime and black history from a critical decolonial perspective but above all else without all the unnecessary propaganda that others love to include but we hate to listen to this week is black history week and we'll be getting into hogan's alley what is hogan's alley hogan's alley is the unofficial official name for park lane which was a prominent black community in vancouver specifically in like the strathcona neighborhood the community ran from main street to jackson avenue and it was home to vancouver's black population and was about four blocks long so like not very big but very prominent for reasons that I'm very excited to discuss and get into. Hogan's Alley's name was not official, but it was the commonly used term for the area, and it was used before 1914, but the exact year that it started is unknown. But before we get into talking about the community itself, I think it's extremely important to talk about where this name stems from to kind of set the stage for what non-black folks in the area thought of black folks and their community. So the name actually comes from a series of popular 1980s comic strips by Richard Felton, called, who had his works primarily published in newspapers in New York. He coined the imaginary community Hogan's alley itself and it was often depicted as a very rough neighborhood. The comic strip often showed minorities living in poverty, crime-ridden communities, uh, they were always around some sort of drug use, they were in decrepit homes, they were very dirty and they were also shown with police near them or around them quite often. Before Black people moved into the area, it was originally inhabited by the Italian community and it also neighbored Chinatown. So the Black community had established their presence. In the area by 1923, but had been documented living in the area as soon as the mid 1800s, meaning that Black people built a community in Vancouver before Vancouver even came to conception. But I also want to note that, like, Black people were in the area a lot sooner than this because of slavery in Canada, but this is just when they were considered to be free and, you know, were in the area not as slaves. The first large migration of Black folks came from California in 1858, so this is just going to be about um, the beginning stages of how Black folks, a lot of Black folks, came to the area of British Columbia, specifically the Victoria and Vancouver colonies. Of course, Black people were already in Canada by this time, but this is just when a larger influx began to flow in. So a lot of Black folks fled to BC, specifically the Victoria and Vancouver area from California, throughout the 1850s as laws were becoming more and more discriminatory by the day in that area. Black folks were not able to testify against white people in court, and they also had no way of seeking justice if they were the targets of violence, robberies, vandalism, or other forms of assault. Many were fleeing from the San Francisco area of California specifically, because even though it was technically a freed state, it really wasn't in practice. In 1852, the Fugitive Slave Bill was passed, which meant that enslaved people who had freed themselves were re-enslaved and brought back to their original slave masters. Black people had to register with the state as being Black. Black folks could not vote, and Black children were either placed in segregated schools or were not allowed to go to school at all. In 1858, the state also passed a law which banned Black folks from moving to the state, even though it was never officially codified. It was brought forth and it was practiced. It was upheld as if it was the law, even though in reality it wasn't. The man who led the colony of Vancouver Island at the time was named James Douglas, and he was aware of the situation in California with the ever-growing racial tensions, and he wanted a way to increase the population of his colonies and wanted to do so in a way that would discourage Americans from taking over. He figured if there were more black folks, then the Americans wouldn't want to try and claim the area as their own because they themselves didn't want black people. So why would they want to come and take an area that had a lot of black people living in it? Now, James himself had mixed ancestry and he was born in Guyana to a Scottish father and a freed black woman of Barbadian and Creole ancestry, but he was white passing. And that was the only reason he was able to hold his position as the governor of the colony of Vancouver and the colony of British Columbia. And he also had a very colonized mindset in the way that he would go on to treat black folks who he had brought to the area. James pushed for this specifically because he was very worried about the influx of white American folks that came to the Fraser River goldfields and so he wanted to recruit people who would be loyal to him and as a result the British government. On April 25th of 1858, a group of about 35 black folks who were a part of a scouting party from San Francisco left the area and headed to Vancouver, where they were going to check things out and then report back as to whether it was better for them to stay where they were or to relocate. The scouts had a conversation with political leaders, including James, where they were promised equal political and economic rights, but only after they became British subjects. They were told that they would be welcomed with open arms, they would be able to purchase land at a low cost, and they would also be able to secure land prior to payment if they built a house, cleared and farmed on the land, or made improvements, which would decrease the cost of the land prior to purchasing. Their children would be able to attend school, and if they owned land and resided in the area, only then would they be able to become a British citizen by taking an oath of allegiance, and that would grant them the right to vote sit as a juror, and be treated as equal under the British law. So until they were able to take that oath to become a British citizen, they were not granted the right to vote, they could not sit on a jury, and they were not subject to equal treatment under British law. But they saw this as very promising, and they decided to go back to San Francisco and report that it was a safe and good idea for Black folks of California to get up out of there and make their move to Vancouver. About 800 black folks made the move, some of whom were freed men and women from all across the US, but others were escaped slaves who wanted to start their free life without the stress of being recaptured. Many came from California and other Western states as they still had a lot of racist and restrictive laws, which showed way too much grace for those who still had enslaved Black folks in their possession, showed a lot of grace for those who carried out racial beatings, attacks, and public lynchings against Black folks, and even denying Black folks who could prove that they were in fact free citizenship, which then made them a target for re-enslavement. Many went on to live throughout the, Vic- the Victoria and Salt Spring Island area, as well as Vancouver. Many went on to make their living through the selling of goods and services to gold miners, as this was often the only way that they could genuinely support themselves and their families, due to racial bias by the white folks in the colonies. The racism that these about 800 Black folks were hoping to escape was also very prevalent in Canada, and that was very unexpected, as the promise that they had been sold of this new life free of racism and prejudice wasn't a true reality. Many of the white colony folk were extremely racist and mistreated Black residents on a regular basis immediately upon their arrival. Churches had segregated seatings, saloons either refused to serve Black folks or charge them higher rates, and a lot of theatres barred Black folks' entry altogether or restricted where they could sit. Again, segregated seating. The promises that James made to entice Black people to move to the area, he didn't really care to follow through with once they arrived, showing that they were in fact used as pawns to protect his own personal interests of making sure that his colonies were not overtaken by America. In 1861, Black folks in Vancouver were barred from joining the volunteer fire department, and so James ushered them to create the colony's first militia unit named Pioneer Rifle Corps. Prior to this, though, in 1859, black men expressed their interest in signing up and were told absolutely not by the white male organizers. This militia unit was created with the sole purpose of defending against American expansion threats and was sworn in in 1861 and was named the Victoria Pioneer Rifle Company, but was commonly known amongst locals as the African Rifles. To me, it's very strange that James didn't care to make sure black folks were living fulfilling lives in the area. But when it came to defending his colony, his his personal interests, he was quick to make sure that something would actually happen to do so. But it was also very strange to me because these black folks wanted to join the volunteer fire department. They did not want to be a militia unit. And that's kind of the direction that James pointed them in, which is problematic in itself. By the end of the 1860s, a lot of the black folks who initially made the trip actually went back to the U.S. Gold was becoming increasingly difficult to find, and so this presented economic hardship for the black folks who were relying solely on the gold miners' needs of goods and services to sustain their families, as other forms of work were not readily available to them due to racism and overall discrimination." This move was also fueled by the abolishment of slavery in the mid-1860s in America, so many felt that they would be given new opportunities and they would rather deal with the discrimination in the States rather than the discrimination faced in British Columbia where they were disconnected from their families, their homes, and overall comfortable ways of being and knowing. A lot of the folks who did not leave ended up living in what would later be known as Hogan's Alley. Some Black people decided to live in the area because it was close to the great northern railway station where many worked as porters i was like i don't know what a porter is like i felt a little bit ignorant but a porter is basically someone who just carries and transports luggage through railway stations airports and hotels now while some people did choose to live in the area because it was close to work it was nice and accessible Many others, I would say for the majority of folks, were forced to settle in this area because housing discrimination was and unfortunately is still very real in Vancouver, and so this is the only way that they would be able to secure a place for them to live. The rental and purchase prices were also significantly lower in this area of town. While many Black folks could have afforded to live elsewhere, they were never given the opportunity to do so because they were not welcomed in other areas due to racism. When Black people did try to rent elsewhere, landlords would lie to prospective of black tenants and s- tell them that empty spaces were in fact occupied so they couldn't rent and this is a practice that still goes on today black folks decided to settle in this area near the railway since they weren't given homes to rent or purchase they just decided to build their own this is very reminiscent of africville and all of this happened in hogan's alley literally the same time as africville so they were quite literally mirroring each other despite being on opposite sides of the country so, about 300 black folks lived in and around the neighborhood when it was up and coming. In the 1940s, Hogan's Alley experienced a population boost with over 800 black residents. It was very community oriented, and there's a strong sense of community because of this, right? Like very family, very homey, very loving. At the peak of Hogan's Alley, many black folks decided to open up their own businesses to serve their own community when others refused to do so simply because of their racist attitudes and actions. Hogan's Alley quickly became known for their unique culture and blue music but it was also unfairly and inaccurately associated with drinking gambling and sex work in 1918 the african methodist epicostal fountain chapel was opened at 823 jackson avenue and it was the only black church in the vancouver area at this time one thing that i think is really important to note and also just warms my heart is that one of the first things that all of the black communities did when they rose to prominence in and across canada Uh, was they built a church and this church would would act as an anchor and it would allow everyone to stay in communication with each other it would allow everyone to see each other on regular basis get together for gatherings it really was just a part of the community and so it was like the very first the most important thing that the community did once they got established so Nora hendrix who is actually the grandmother of jimi hendrix and she lived to be 101 which is like you go girl Um, The grandma of Jimi Hendrix, she was a co-founder of this community staple church, and the church was actually in use by the black community until 1989, but the building is unfortunately not a designated heritage site and it is now a private residence, which is both confusing and frustrating. So, the Hogan's Alley community was extremely important for the rise of the black female entrepreneurs in Canada across this time. So, one of the black female entrepreneurs whose business was very well known was Viva Moore, who owned and operated restaurant and speakeasy V's Chicken and Steakhouse, which opened in 1948 at 209 Union Street and was open until 1980. Her husband was also an owner, but he worked on the railway, so it was really like her thing it was known as the go-to spot for good food and good drinks non-black folks from all over would flock to hogan's alley just to go to this chicken spot it's super ironic to me that black folks weren't welcomed into other parts of town yet non-black folks who excluded them often flocked to their neighborhood to eat drink be entertained and then go right back home to talk poorly about the area and its inhabitants this very much reminds me of When people from the suburbs go downtown, have their entertainment, and then go right back home and then talk about how scary it was to be downtown and how they feared for their life and yet they had the best time ever. So black performers who went to Vancouver also knew that it was the spot to go to and whenever Duke Ellington, Nat King Cole, Cab Calloway, Billie Holiday, BB King, and Louis Armstrong were in town, they'd make sure that they stopped by. Okay, so just a little bit more about people who lived there. Like we talked about, Miss Nora Hendricks, she lived in the area from about the 1920s all the way up until her death in the 1980s so she had roots in vaudeville and she would often participate in performances for com- the community in vancouver um, as did her son al hendrix who is the father of Jimi hendrix making nora jimmy's grandmother jimmy would often spend summers with his family in hogan's alley and nora was also the co-founder of the church as we mentioned before and she also worked at v's chicken and steakhouse So, she was well known, she was well loved, and a very integral part of the community, as many black women were. The singer and actor, Thelma gibson Towns was also a prominent Hogan's Valley resident, and her brother, Leonard Gibson, was a dancer who was a part of the Negro Workshop dance group, which led him, ultimately, to later work with the Ballet of British Columbia. Hogan's Alley would be the first and the last prominent black community in Vancouver. So from the time black people moved into the area, the middle class and upper class white Vancouverites described the area as a slum. They called it poverty ridden and they would often use demoralizing rhetoric which would support their belief that the community should not exist and that it was a burden for black people to be present. Just like with Africville, they knew that the reports, the publications demonizing the area and the people who live in it would allow the greater majority to be okay with and even support the mistreatment and eventually the demolition and destruction of the thriving community. Newspapers made it seem as if juke joints, brothels, speakeasies, crime, and bootleggers were all that the area consisted of, just ignoring all of the good and beautiful and wonderful things that they were doing despite the obstacles that were placed in their way. From 1929 on, Hogan's Alley was discussed as and characterized as a slum. And this was around the same time that the process of urban renewal was more prevalent than ever, and Canada was essentially right behind America on this move. So essentially what the governments, both Canadian and American, were doing was destroying prominent black communities that were well established, that were successful, and forcing them to move into social housing, otherwise known as projects. These projects were notorious for having guns and drugs planted within, and they were consistently over-policed, thus destroying Black communities, families, and people on a much deeper level than just demolishing their towns. The governments were actively and intentionally crushing Black people's spirits, crushing their souls, crushing the essence of their being. In 1939, the BC Supreme Court reported on the conditions of poverty, which were apparently evident in the neighborhood. They didn't talk about giving the area more funding or listing what could be done to improve things, they just talked about how bad it was. Obviously, they were trying to get the public to push for its destruction so they could act as if it wasn't their idea in the first place. At around the same time, newspaper articles began to demonize and put forth problematic rhetoric about Hogan's Alley, described it as a trouble zone, which the newspapers had been doing for years at this point, but they really doubled down once the BC Supreme Court made this statement. In the 1940s through to the 50s, there was a very strong push to destroy the community under the false pretense of concern for living conditions of the Black folks. Many claimed that the cabins and houses in Hogan's Alley were deemed unfit for habitation and were said to pose health hazard risks. This is literally the exact same thing the city of Halifax would allege about Africville just a short time later. The push for urban renewal was made more evident by the fact that the city of Vancouver shifted some of their bylaws which were meant to discourage the area's overall development as a residential neighborhood. They did not want it to become a verified residential neighborhood. That was the last thing they wanted. Vancouver's first female city councillor, Helena Guttridge, took up the cause of residential housing in the Vancouver East End and she would actually go on to tour Hogan's Alley and interview residents about their thoughts of social housing and all of those different things. This would actually, though, eventually lead to Helena not getting elected for a second term and it only furthered the discussion of urban renewal in the area. This urban renewal process at the time was led in Canada by varying governments and was done under the guise of city improvement by demolishing and getting rid of slums, which were really just impoverished and underfunded neighbourhoods that were intentionally, strategically and methodically forgotten about by their ruling government. But it was genuinely just their racist way of pushing control onto Black communities after they had been freed and had finally started to live what they considered to be a good life. They would then forcibly move the Black folks to inadequate social housing projects, which were often worse than the homes that they had been forced to leave behind. Their homes were then cleared to make way for freeways, dog parks, and other things that weren't necessary in general, but specifically were not necessary in the exact places in which Black communities had established themselves. This is also all very reminiscent of what went down in Africville, Nova Scotia. If you haven't listened to that or watched that episode, I recommend that you do because it everything ties together and it allows it all to make sense because everything was going on in the same time frame. In 1969, the city proposed their plan to build a freeway through Hogan's Alley, Chinatown, and Gastown. This was, of course, met with resistance, protests, and uprising from local residents. And their resistance and protests actually worked effectively to stop the destruction of Chinatown and Gastown, but not Hogan's Alley. The building of the freeway was especially unnecessary because there was already a viaduct that was built in 1915. First built, it went over a part of the False Creek Waterway, which wasn't yet filled. And it actually went over the rail yards in the Northeast False Creek. The city said that a new replacement was needed because of the age of the previous one and its overall poor construction, which brought into question the structure's ability to hold weight. They claimed that the lampposts would have to be removed in order to reduce the weight load, and that it was plagued with difficulties from the beginning, and it wasn't uncommon to see sagging sections timber propping up the bridge as concrete would fall to the ground below. Now, it was unclear if any of this was true, but this was thought to be the thing that pushed the BC officials to destroy Hogan's Alley, making it seem as if it would be something that was done for the greater good, when that wasn't the reality at all. Starting in 1967, the city of Vancouver leveled the western half of Hogan's Alley in order to construct the freeway. Half of Chinatown was also cleared, as the freeway was meant to go through both Hogan's Alley and Chinatown. In 1971, the city abandoned the policy for urban renewal, but they did approve and build the Georgia Viaduct in 1972, which would result in the destruction of two blocks of only a four-block community, Hogan's Alley, and displace the quickly growing and thriving community. Construction of the Georgia and Dunsmere Viaducts would completely displace the community. Um, Now, we keep talking about viaducts, and I was like, I feel kind of silly talking about them and not knowing what exactly they are. So in case you don't know either, a viaduct is a very specific type of bridge that consists of a series of arches, piers, and or columns supporting a very long and elevated railway or road. The city justified their decision to clear Hogan's alley and half of Chinatown to create the freeway because of the recent creation of two tower blocks in Strathcona named the Raymer Social Housing Project. Now, these projects were both meant to house the Black and Chinese folks who had been displaced by the destruction of their existing community. They literally, like the government, quite literally said, Okay, well, we built you somewhere else to go, so now we can demolish your homes with no consent on your part or without having to give you compensation because we gave you something else, even though it was not at all what anybody wanted. Nobody asked for it. Literally nobody. So... Throughout researching this case, I just have to say, it was quite difficult to find information on Hogan's Alley, and that is in part because it is intentionally left out of curriculums all over, so it's very hard to get that knowledge out there when nobody's forced to teach it. Nobody has to learn about it. The government didn't want to acknowledge or rectify the harms that they had caused to Hogan's Alley and its residents, so they just acted like it never happened. As I mentioned earlier, after Hogan's Alley was destroyed, no prominent black community in the area emerged again this was honestly because of the deliberate destruction of the, not only the community but the culture as well the black community in vancouver never quite recovered and came together in the way that it once had at the peak of hogan's alley that sense of community could not be replicated and that was an, exactly what the government was hoping hogan's alley actually didn't really gain that much attention for a long time after the demolition and destruction but when the shift occurred Filmmakers, writers, artists began to explore the area, its significance, and the eventual demolition in their varying works of art. Recently, the community was honored through the Jimi Hendrix Shrine. Community groups like Hogan's Alley Memorial Project and Hogan's Alley Society do what they can to keep the legacy alive and thriving. So, just going to talk a little bit about them now. Hogan's Alley Society is a nonprofit organization made up of civil rights activists, business professionals, community organizations, artists, writers, and academics who are committed to daylighting the presence of Black history in Vancouver and throughout BC. HASS, H-A-S, Hogan's Alley Society, leads a research driven approach to community development which seeks to preserve and promote the historical, cultural, social, and economic contributions made by Black people. On their website, they use the term black settlers, but to me, in my opinion, that is not a thing. Just not a thing. Black people cannot be settlers where we were enslaved, where we were forcibly relocated, and then upon finding freedom, deciding to find a place to reside which was relative to where in which we were forcibly relocated. So that's just not a thing. So I say black people instead of black settlers, because to me, black settlers don't exist. Hass is in the process of acquiring and developing land in order to operate assets like a community land trust. They have two main lead initiatives, the Hogan's Alley Memorial Project and the Hogan's Alley Land Trust. In 2014, the City of Vancouver formally apologized and officially recognized Hogan's Alley and its Black community. In 2018, the City of Vancouver announced plans to tear down the viaducts that were responsible for the destruction of Hogan's Alley. They plan on destroying them to rebuild parks, housing, and community centers. So it's like... All of that demonization, the terror, the mistreatment was all literally for nothing. It was literally for nothing. They could have simply kept the community there and built parks, housing, and community centers as that community deserved. They didn't have to destroy it, only for years later to just restore it back to what it should have been or what it could have been. Freder Wade Compton says that it is so very important to remember what happened to Black communities in Vancouver so people remember that top-down planning doesn't work and that modern versions of the same ideals won't work and will only continue to perpetuate harm, which is a very interesting point because this is something that still goes on in varying ways to Black communities to this day. He says that the people who live in the neighborhood should have control over what happens to the neighborhood and that's the lesson of this particular displacement. So Hogan's Alley Society is currently in negotiations with the city of Vancouver about what the future of Hogan's Alley should be at the previous site. Uh, they've also been working with the city to ensure that the redevelopment of Hogan's Alley of the Hogan's Alley block represents the legacy of the Black community. They want to create a space that honors the legacy of Black residents, Um, and also adds to the vibrant multicultural vibe that Vancouver's got going on in this specific area. The Hogan's Alley Society has also partnered with the Portland Housing Society to support the tenants of Nora Hendricks Place, which is located along the Georgia Viaduct. Uh, The housing project acknowledges the displacement of Black residents and also functions as a centre to rebuild the community of Black and Indigenous residents on the downtown east side. The City of Vancouver has also said that they intend to build a cultural centre on the Main Street block. The province of BC, however, has never formally apologized for the displacement of Hogan's Alley residents and for the unnecessary destruction of Hogan's Alley. So, why was Hogan's Alley significant? Like Vancouver at the time that Hogan's Alley rose to prominence was the home to KKK headquarters. Yeah, KKK headquarters. And so they would parade around Granville. Um, So to have such a thriving black community in the face of such racism was an extremely radical act and such a strong statement that black people couldn't be scared off. This group of black folks were, were determined to live a happy, peaceful and fulfilling life and they did everything that they could to do so in the face of adversity but black people shouldn't have to be so resilient and they shouldn't have to face all of these challenges when just simply trying to live so when i was doing research for this case the fbi came up and i was very confused as to why i was like this is not isn't i'm discombobulated something is not what's not adding up two plus two is not equaling four here but basically they set up this mock town where it's described and this is pulled right from their website it's described as a hotbed of terrorist and criminal activity where the bank is robbed twice a week and they've named it hogan's alley mobster drug dealers and international terrorists look lurk at every corner and they say that's exactly the way that they want it they have real people coming in and out as well as driving through So Hogan's Alley in the States, not Hogan's Alley, Canada, Black community, it's where the FBI teaches their new agents about the latest tactical techniques and where they are immersed in stressful situations where they must think quickly on their feet. They have free use of all their weapons and all of their techniques. They get into simulated gunfights with actors who play the criminals and also the bystanders. They say that Hogan's Alley keeps other towns safe as a result they say that they got the name from the hogan's alley comic strip in the 1890s because the alley itself was located in a rough neighborhood so they thought the name fit perfectly for their crime ridden town remember when i mentioned that hogan's alley got the name prior to 1914 and it wasn't the official name on all city or official documents it was called park lane as it was clear that they knew by putting hogan's alley on the documents would make their racism overt rather than covert as they had intended It's clear that this name was given to Canada's park lane, Hogan's Alley, in an effort to further demonize the space and its residents to demean them, to criminalize them, and to make them feel subhuman and less than others who lived in the area or lived outside of the area. The fact that the FBI has a fake town that simulates crime is very weird to me, but the fact that the non-black people of Vancouver named the only black area of Vancouver after Hogan's Alley is disgusting. The same place that the FBI got the name for their little training town is the same place that Vancouverites got the name for Hogan Valley in Canada. So I don't actually have a lot of thoughts on this one, but I'll keep it brief, I'll keep it cute, I'll keep it concise. I have been to Vancouver and I have been to Chinatown. I must say it's absolutely beautiful and it's booming with culture and you can tell how important it is to Chinese folks and non-Chinese folks alike. Like it really makes me think about how if a black area could have been could have endured and thrived in the same way as Chinatown, if it wasn't systematically and systemically destroyed. Right. Vi's chicken house and the church could have been preserved and could have been a very important part of the black community, the same way that Chinatown and Gastown were described as must sees to me, like when I went on my trip, everyone was like, you have to go there, you have to go there. By locals, they're like, this is something that you just have to see. It's the same way that Hogan's Alley could have been. And as a black person, that would have been extremely impactful. The fact that the church is under private ownership and hasn't been returned to Black Hogan's Alley residents is frustrating. The fact that there's no preservation, like large-scale preservation or marking of the area today is even more frustrating. Further hits home the point that they are trying to erase the heritage and the wrongdoings completely. The only way that the community and its history has remained alive today is through its descendants and other Black people. And while it's amazing that they've been able to do that, It's a responsibility that shouldn't fall only on their shoulders. I will leave a couple documentaries, Black-made documentaries, down below that I recommend you watching if you want to learn more information. Um, And I also recommend that you follow, donate, and interact with Hogan's Alley Society and all of their different projects, including the Hogan's Alley Memorial Project, and you can find those links down below as well. I just want to thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Girl You Haven't Heard, where we discussed Hogan's Alley, the thriving Black BC community that was systemically destroyed by the BC and Vancouver government. So yeah, I want to thank you so much for being here, and I will see you next week.